continue where we left off last time we didn't get much feedback or follow-up from the last episode so we don't have much to follow up on so we're gonna jump straight into um, some news so the first item uh, from the news I want to talk about is some news about Stack Overflow um, from the 1st of March uh, attribution is required under the MIT license this is something that is gonna affect many many of us uh, pretty much uh, every every developer uses Stack Overflow in one way, one way or another. So this is going to be an important change, and I think my opinion is a is a welcome change. Um, so what what exactly does this mean? Is it as soon as you find any snippet on Stack Overflow and you want to use this in your project, it's required that you um, leave a node? But where exactly is it in the code, or do you if you have an app list him and uh, the person in, in the about page? I think I was reading the forums and the comments on the on the Stack Overflow announcement. Uh, we will link to it in the show notes. Uh, but apparently, any just um, a comment or mention linking to the Stack Overflow uh, question where you got the 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 code from uh, will be sufficient. Um, I guess like the debate will will start on when when is the code actually used or just the idea or things like that how do you prove it that you got it from there if you didn't code if you didn't copy the the code exactly you know verbatim so what if uh, i look for something on stack overflow like what is the hexadecimal representation of the facebook blue color and i copy that into my code then i definitely took something that some people would say is code into my app and <laughs> it's definitely not even copyrightable that someone posted the answer there I, yeah, I, I guess I guess Stack Overflow, like any other kind of open source uh, stuff, will rely on the will of people just to give attribution and credit when when yeah. it's deserved. Um, I will definitely start using doing it for the my project. Um, I think hopefully some of my Stack Overflow answers will be linked to from some code bases. So uh, I guess there have been some cases where people had really elaborate answers and those yeah. were then copied into books and other publications. Some of them are so elaborate and so amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Funnily, funnily enough, one of my most vote upvoted questions is on Android on Stack Overflow. Oh really? Was it something like how do you prevent the screen from rotating or something? No, it's how to hide the action bar <laughs> on okay. Yeah. I was lucky that the um, the accepted answer wasn't the perfect solution and then I went on and added like a one using styles and themes on on Android and many people found it more useful than the accepted answer and oh, people okay. started voting it and You're people one of those people okay <laughs> uh, 
anyway, you wanted to comment on some some more some some different news, right? Yeah, so there was an interesting release, and now I forgot which day that actually was. Um, so Kotlin 1.0 was released uh, not too long ago. This is a new language that runs on the JVM. It's really close to Java, and it was developed by um, JetBrains, the makers of IntelliJ, and also well basically the force behind Android Studio besides Google. And it's quite interesting because the characteristics that it has make it um, really suitable for Android development in particular. It's not a revolutionary language by by any means. It's very, very cl close to Java, but comes with some things you definitely miss when you develop an Android. Um, for example, Lambda's higher order functions some proper collections where you can map and filter over um, something like extension func functions that allow you to, to write nicer DSLs um, to work with views, for example. Okay. What What's a DSL for people um, that um, don't know, like me? That's a domain-specific language. And um, yeah, in this case, what, you, uh, what I've seen for Android um, is that you can express your views, which are normally defined or rather declared in XML, directly in code. So kind of what you do in um, in React, where you also don't don't specify your things in separate template files, but directly in the code where they are used. There's a library also by um, JetBrains called Anko that does exactly that. So then you have a DSL where you can say relative layout and you use the normal syntax to define everything. So um, yeah, uh, since we don't even have Java 8 support on, um, on Android at the moment, it's quite interesting how far you can go with with Kotlin. So what kind of language is it? Like what for people that haven't seen any single snippet of code like myself of Kotlin, what does it resemble of? It it basically looks like Java. It's it's really okay. close to that. You can leave off the uh, semicolons. So that was really important for them. I think they mentioned that directly on the homepage. I don't know why this is so important to them. But Optionals. um they yeah, this is this is an important bit. So they don't have optionals, but they have um, nulls as part of their type system. So you have to explicitly uh, mark everything that is optional with a, with a question mark. So that looks quite similar to what you have in Swift, but um, they do it quite differently. So you have to deal with every null explicitly, but you can also use something like bang bang behind um, any variable that you are sure is not going to be null. And they have some additional syntax behind this. Um, we talked about this yesterday at a meetup where I was moderating a session about um, JVM languages that can run on Android, and a lot of people try Kotlin just because of um, the nullity, the explicit nullity that it provides. And some people had also tried um, Scala, but since you work on top of the, the Android SDK, which doesn't have types that are wrapped in an optional type, for example, or option, option no type I think is in Java 8 and option is what uh, Scala has you can't directly use the Android SDK so you, you always rely on people providing wrappers for the libraries and providing the correct type annotations and what um, what Kotlin does which seems very pragmatic to me is everything that comes from Java so is not Kotlin is um, presumed to be nullable so you have to check all the parameters if they are actually null. And I'm pretty sure they also also take annotations into account. So on Android, it's quite common to use not null or nullable and Java cell annotations for parameters. So similar well, similar to what Apple introduced for Objective-C to Swift, all the 
nullability, nullability annotations get translated into the right thing for Swift? I'm do pretty they sure they do this, yeah. They do? Oh, I'm not right entirely thing. sure, but I, I, I assume they do. Is, uh, how much of the Android SDK is annotated these days? That is an excellent question. I don't, ac I don't know how much is covered at this point. It seems like a lot, but I always run into some places where they still don't have the, the full annotations. Okay. Cool. Uh, I think this is a perfect segue to our main topic. Um, yeah, we are almost in it, I guess. Yeah. So we're going to, um, in our first episode, we covered a, a very high level um, overview of what the differences between developing for iOS and Android are. And I think because we didn't want to have a like a three, four hour episode. Uh, we left quite a few things for, for a follow-up episode, which is today. So we're going to cover quite a few things. Uh, where would you like to start, Pascal? So I, I've talked quite a bit about Kotlin, so I wanted to ask you a question. At, at some point, Apple made the move from GCC to Clang or LLVM, and I was wondering what implications that had for iOS development. And you mentioned to me once that there's something that you don't actually ship the binary, but then some sort of bit code to Apple, and they deliver something to the, to the device, but I'm not entirely sure what it actually is that you upload to Apple and what the App Store then provides to the individual devices. Okay, so this is, first of all, the most, uh, the most recent change is the, um, the bit code that Apple introduced with iOS 9. Um, which is, by the way, is required for tvOS and watchOS, and is um, optional for uh, for iOS, but is enabled by default on new projects. And this is actually, since we spoke about this, I've been doing a bit of research. And when iOS moved from GCC to to Clang and LLVM, the, the compiler, um, LLVM introduced a new intermediate representation. Uh, different from the traditional GCC intermediate representation. And that is uh, one of the reasons why LLVM used to stand for um, low-level low virtual, virtual, uh, virtual machine. And they dropped that, um, those, um, that acronym, so it's just LLVM. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. But at the beginning, uh, that name had a bit of sense because the the intermediate representation uh, was more like a kind of bytecode similar to what all the VMs uh, VMs do. Uh, I will link to the the, Wikipe uh, the Wikipedia page on this. It's really interesting. So I was mentioning this because I don't know now with bitcode this is uh, defined as a new intermediate representation. So I'm not sure if this is an intermediate representation on top of the LLVM IR, um, or it just replaces that. So what Bitcode does is when you upload your binary to Apple, it's not compiled. You are not uh, uploading the machine code, but this kind of Bitcode or kind of bytecode. But this is actually what you transfer to Apple then? It is if you enable Bitcode. Okay. And what this allows Apple to do is that when they deliver um, your application to the devices, they can relink it and deliver a different binary from what you you uploaded. Initially, there was some speculation 
on whether this would mean that they can uh, recompile for future architectures. But apparently the reality is that their idea is only to introduce future optimizations. For example, for the Apple Watch, uh, in the future they could recompile all, all apps to use less battery or be more performant because they use they introduce some new a new instruction set that uh, uses much less power and that could be pretty interesting but i don't know we will see in what degree apple uses this capability but is a is a good thing on the other hand one of the things that people complained about is okay i'm not testing my binary the binary is that is being delivered to to users but if the changes are going to be so minimal, I don't think is uh, that much of a risk. Yeah, so on, on Android, uh, we know everything is basically a JVM implementation. Uh, on more modern Android devices, that is called ART, the Android runtime, and on older devices, that's Dalvik. That was introduced in Android 5, right? I think so, yeah, Lollipop. Yeah. That was the first one where um, ART was enabled by default. I think in later KitKat um, releases, so 4.4, you could enable ART uh, in the developer option, so just to play around and see what crashes when you when you use that. And just yesterday I heard a story that apparently the Tesco app um, wouldn't work at all in the ART mode because I think it uses Xamarin behind the scenes, mm. and it took them months to fix this. So it sounds probably worse than it actually is because uh, the only people who had the luxury of running ART were Nexus owners <laughs> in the so, beginning. Okay, so let me get this straight. Um, so ART runs the same bytecode as Dalvik. Yes. But it does different things. Yeah, yeah. That, that's some okay. Oh, yeah, I can talk so about you this. So you didn't need to compile for ART, right? <laughs> you don't need to compile, but there is an uh, ahead-of-time compilation step that was introduced with ART. So ART uses ahead-of-time comp compilation, while Dalvik uses JIT, so just-in-time compilation. And I, I think it's just really interesting how how it changes or how the pendulum swings into different directions there. So everything was JIT, all the things at some point. Now we are kind of swinging back again a little and see more ahead of time compilation. Um, from a user perspective, you can actually notice that because as soon as you upgrade your S, you will spend a lot more time optimizing applications. I don't know if you've seen that screen on Android before. Have, so after, yeah. after every OS update, it optimizes the applications and that takes significantly more time now because that runs the um, ahead of time compilation on your device. Okay, ART. didn't know that. Yeah, and in general, ART improved a few things. So. Um, well, in general, it, it tried to optimize garbage collection. I think that's the biggest thing for uh, for developers. So the pauses are a bit quicker, um, or, or rather shorter. There's one pause that was completely eliminated in the mark phase. So there's a concurrent um, market sweep or generational garbage collection in there. And they've eliminated one of the pauses. Yeah. So it's gone from two pauses to a single pause, right? I remember yeah. that from we were in the... Google I.O. Oh, right, together. yeah, we were. We saw that. We were really excited. We saw it together. Right. Um, okay, so maybe we can talk a bit about um, the languages used that relates quite well to this uh, compiler topic and uh, garbage collection models. Uh, just before we spoke about a bit uh, a bit about this, so at the moment for iOS, we can you can currently, currently develop on Objective-C or Swift. Uh, you were just saying that 
the main, the officially supported language for Android is Java, but Kotlin has is, got a really good strategy on how to uh, support better the, the current SDKs. Do you think the transition is going to be, is going to ever happen? And if it happens, what kind of transition do you envision? Is it going to be similar to what Apple is doing with Swift? Um, yeah, do you see Google ever? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. I have no idea what to predict there. Um, in the end, Google could just come along and say, yeah, we endorse Kotlin. This is going to be the language we write everything in Android for. Who's um, behind Kotlin, by the way? Who's developing uh, it? It's JetBrains. Oh, j oh, sorry, you said that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm is Google involved in this at all? No, no, they're not. Um, th there's no official endorsement coming from Google there. Some some Googlers obviously use it. They're just engineers like us. Um, what the new data bindings library, which was released uh, last year, was originally written in Kotlin and then ported to Java before they released it. So there are definitely some people playing around with it. That's it. The language is incredibly young. So as I've just said, the 1.0 was just hit last week. So um, I think this is the time where people will try it out and see if it actually works. So yesterday I talked to a bunch of developers and a lot of them had tried it um, at various stages. It was very much in flux just a year ago. Um, but at this point it's just in use for toy projects. No one has actually used this. But so when it comes to the actual transition, um, I think it's actually easier than um, Objective-C to Swift because the languages are way more similar than, uh, so Java is way more similar to Kotlin than Swift is to Objective-C. So, and in fact, you can just convert um, Java files to Kotlin. There's a mode if you run Android Studio or IntelliJ, there's something like uh, Command-Alt-Shift-K or so, and then it will on the fly convert your file. It's not the most um, idiomatic code, as you can imagine, but it's incredibly easy to get started with. So if you do this, you just install the Kotlin plugin in your IDE, and I guess most developers will already use that one, same as Xcode. And then it asks you if it uh, should add something to your build file, and then it just works. And uh, same as with iOS, you can just mix and match. So you don't have to convert your entire project. You can just start with a single file if you if you like to. And so, the yeah, the barrier to entry is super low, and you get the benefits immediately. It's so much less code that you have to write and maintain, of course. And the tooling integration, since it's um, made by JetBrains, is absolutely fantastic. You get all the features that you have in uh, when writing Java. So refactoring, debugging, everything just works. Okay. Um, I wanted to, w once again, while researching for today's episode, I, um, I came across a couple of interesting stuff. So what Apple's doing to, to make Swift run on any kind of OS version uh, is to bundle the runtime with together with your application. So whatever runtime you compile for, uh, Swift, uh, whatever Swift version you compile for, its runtime will be bundled with your application. And now I really thought from when I saw the presentation that that was only the case for iOS 7 because that was released before Swift was announced with iOS 8. But apparently not. So at the moment, you've got an 8 megabyte 
also overhead on your Swift, uh, Swift application compared to Objective-C. And apparently the speculation is that that will keep happening until the Swift runtime framework oh, so language will stabilize. That, that is interesting. So does this mean even just the most simple Hello World application is going to start at 8 megabytes? Correct. Interesting. I always wondered about this because on Android you can still, it's totally possible to ship an application which is a couple kilobytes. Yep. Yeah, and on iOS it just starts for most applications right. at maybe 50. Um, is that just because of the asset sizes or um, what? why well, is it so big? I think 50 is a lot. Um, okay. But I think... So it, it does feel like a lot, uh, it feels like a lot to me as an Android person because if I see a, a chat application or something on the Play Store and it's 50 megabytes, I'm like, what? But it seems on iOS, this is... Yeah, me too. Like, if I see that on iOS, it'll okay. be a lot as well. But I don't know. Um, that extra overhead, definitely, it's not nice. Especially but if your app doesn't do a lot. And if you are expecting people to download it over 3G or 4G or yeah. any cellular cellular network, it doesn't help. But hey. So back to the runtime bundling. I think uh, on Android, something fairly similar happens um, with the support libraries and the design libraries that Google provides. So rather than depending on the runtime or the libraries that um, exist on the device and come from the framework, people use the support library and some other libraries that Google provides, which port that, that stuff back to, to older versions, trying to alleviate the, the pains there of the version fragmentation that we all know. And the play services are, are another part which give you access to, for example, location services and nice APIs, more accurate APIs. Yeah. So that's Google's main strategy to defragmentize uh, the an Android right, uh, yeah. ecosystem, right? To what degree do you think that is working? I think it works fairly well, but we've entered a different age as well. We don't really get completely new APIs with every um, new phone generation. So it doesn't really happen that you get a new sensor or what, what did we get? What, what were the things that broke everything? The uh, permissions, new permissions? Yeah, new permissions were definitely a big one. So that was something that required an operating system level integration. But I think in general, so what were the Sorry, changes in, in phones and in hardware? you just couldn't backport. So where you think this requires an OS-level integration and it doesn't even make sense to have a library providing this, oh, I have to wait. I, I feel know. like there was there was a time where this where this happened, but yeah, maybe none. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, p permissions that came with Marshmallow were, were definitely something um, that you just can't backfill to, to older versions. Even though I see a lot of apps that still show their permission screens and allow people to opt out out of certain things. So, I th oh yeah, at Twitter we do this here, for example. So if you if you launch the app, uh, we ask you if we can customize the experience with location data and so on. And if you say no there, even on older versions of, of Android, we obviously won't use your location provider, even though we would have access because um, the permission was already granted on install time. Yeah. Okay, so the the other thing I wanted to to mention um, that uh, I came across while researching uh, was that I found this article uh, um, written by um, I think this is a studio I don't know 
what they exactly do, but I guess they make mobile apps. Sorry, the website is infinum.co. Uh, we will link to the, the this article. But they claim that Android development is 30% more expensive than iOS. Do you, did you see? Uh, yeah, you I saw a, it, yeah. Did you have a look at it? So these guys uh, provide a uh, few data points on several projects. Uh, they've got, they call them Project A to F. And they measure this by the number of lines that each of the projects are comprised of. And we can see big differences. Um, like, for example, Project A on iOS is uh, nearly 7,000 lines of code. On the Android counterpart is over 15,000 lines of code. That's a difference of 124%. Uh, project B difference is 4%. Another project, 80%, 198%, 18%, 49%. So the, in average, 38% more lines of code. Obviously, this is just one data yeah, point. But also line, lines of code, uh, if you yeah. don't normalize it between the two, I don't know if it actually... Exactly. We don't know that much. what kind of pattern. Do they use but the curly bracket on the same line? Or do next they, line do they mention <laughs> times there at all? So development time, is that specified there? They don't. They don't. Oh, actually, they do. The Sorry. Um, okay. Hours of work. They, they average for the same projects, uh, the... The average difference is 28% extra time on the Android projects. 28, okay. Um, yeah, as I said, this is just one single data point for a single team. Um, I'm, I am not sure what um, what to think about this. I'm not sure how much can be extrapolated from this. Um, but yeah, when it comes to line, lines of code probably nothing but hours of work um, are way more interesting yeah i don't know do you think it's worth getting to this debate or uh, it's going to be well I, I don't even know if there is a debate so yeah. from my experience android stuff just takes longer yeah <laughs> and i still haven't really figured out why that is so in this particular case therefore uh, the website you mentioned they started from from scratch though so there's no technical debt or anything they had to take care of and yet they came to that conclusion, and I'm still not surprised. So in my experience, um, most projects on Android take more like 50% longer Okay. at a minimum. So you, you think this is something that is real, or at least is happening for some kind of project, right? Yeah. Okay. So just to wrap this up, um, this topic, the reasons, the hypothesis by these guys is that First of all, is not a great solution, but uh, sorry, is not a great argument. You say just more code. Applications for Android are written in Java, which is simply a more verbose language than Objective C. Not sure about that, to be fair. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. If you if you break Objective C calls into different lines, yeah, I was get. just about to say they should also take line length into account because I, from what I see, the Objective C lines are a yeah. lot longer. I don't know what what do you. Um, in the Twitter for Android code base, do you guys break lines? Uh, we do. Break I think method at calls into different lines. Or? Yeah, I think at this point we have 120 characters per line as a limit. Okay. In the iOS code base, we have the rule of not breaking lines, um, <laughs> okay. not breaking method uh, method calls into different lines. Right. So, so we even have a CI check, so it will fail if you okay. um, have longer lines. Okay, interesting. Anyway, the other three reasons they give is emulators are slower, that's true. Fragmentation, well, don't know that much about that. And then XML layout in. 
there's not much to say about this. So oh, yeah, I just I just tweeted earlier today. I spent um, yeah. You've been fighting layouts today, haven't you? Well, for two days basically, but uh, in the end, it took me a good chunk of a day to position one one box to the relative bottom of another box that it was contained in. I felt really, really good about myself when I managed to do this after maybe six hours of work. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you um, a few more things about the language. So on iOS, you now have two blessed languages. So you have Objective-C and Swift. So just, just personally, do you enjoy working in Swift more than Objective-C? Or what's your feeling there at the moment? Definitely. Um, Swift is like, I don't know, is is such a pleasure to work in. Um, and Objective-C, I still enjoy it. I like many of the features. I'm really grateful to have been able to work on it, but it feels really out of date. Uh, every time I have to deal with nulls and stuff like that, it's like, why, why? Yeah, so yesterday in, in my uh, group there at the meetup that I moderated, I asked one question that was, so why do you want to move away from, in that case, Java, but if it's Objective-C, what is the most annoying thing that makes you really want to switch to a different language? The language itself. <laughs> uh, is that a question for me? Yeah. So first of all, the syntax. I, I'm not annoyed by Objective-C's uh, syntax. I like it. It's fine. But Swift is just nicer. It's more concise. Um, it's got a lot of really nice shortcuts. I'm a big fan of the if-let pattern or the guard-let-else pattern. I really like that. I'm really looking forward to concurrency to be added to Swift. Probably not for Swift 3, but in the future that will be amazing to stop having to call dispatch underscore async in a C style. Uh, you still have to do that in Swift to use Ground Central Dispatch. You still have to call the C style functions for that. So I can't wait for that to be native in the language. Um, but I don't know, everything in Swift is so much nicer. Unfortunately, every now and then, when I'm working with third-party libraries that were designed designed for Objective-C, I say, well, still have to wait a few more years how, until how that is, the, is ready. How's the interop story in general between Swift and Objective-C? Do you have to jump through a lot of hoops there in order to use something that was written for Objective-C, or does it just work? Um, not in general. Um, so the first thing that you need for a library to be usable in Objective-C is um, to add nullability, nullability annotations. And second of all is to add, to stop using some of the types that are not supported in Swift. For example, um, last weekend I was working with this um, um, library to um, draw um, graphs on Objective-C, um, sorry, on, on iOS called uh, CorePlot. And they have only recently released a version of it that works with well with Swift because they were using NS decimal number and that is not supported in Swift. So they recently moved to NS number, which is natively support supported in Swift. So that is more usable as well. And also uh, it's a common thing to use ID um, to not specify the type in Objective-C. An ID can be anything. So... The less you use that, the better for Swift as well, and um, that in general. Okay, so how, do, how does it work if you have a library that you want to use that 
makes use of those constructs that are n- not supported by Swift. Will it just not compile? Um, I don't know what it does if you use, for example, NS decimal or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what it does. Uh, but for example, if you don't use nullability, everything will be explicitly unwrapped. It's really inconvenient. You don't get all the benefits of optionals and uh, type safety. Um, it can, right. be, can be messy. You get a lot of any object uh, returns with which forces you into downcasting and all that ugly stuff. Yeah, but that sounds like a benefit to me compared to something like Kotlin, that Apple is willing to break backwards compatibility and be a bit bolder there, say, this this was a bad idea, and we're just not going to support this at all in Swift, whereas Kotlin has gone the really, really conservative route and supports everything. So it's essentially feature-wise a superset of Java, so everything that Java does, it supports as well. So even some, um, they the one thing that they don't really support are wildcard um, generics, but there's still a way that you can enable them through an annotation if you really have to. But they try to steer you away from it as much as possible. To be fair, Apple ha- they haven't gone fully radical on the thing, oh, so yeah, sure. most things will work. It's only specific cases where things are are either very difficult to use, very convoluted, or some specific cases it will just not work but um yeah that is the case but in general i think i see a very bright future for swift people the community are loving it and there are more and more libraries i'm surprised of how how many libraries are making modifications like open source libraries are making modifications to work nicely with uh swift um yeah i think it's gonna be good how how do you feel about the nullity and having to handle this? I know some people coming from very dynamic languages like Objective-C say, oh my God, and I'm going to have to deal with all of this extra nonsense here, having to check if this is actually there. I'm a developer, let me do what I... In Swift, you mean? Yeah. Um, so just to give you a bit of background on that, uh, in the typical debate whether uh, calling a method on null or nil on objective C should crash or not. I'm a big supporter of the no op uh, option and I know terrible. you probably terrible. <laughs> you're the opposite. But uh I consider myself a very responsible developer and I never I always think about things like, okay, th- this can be a no op. Um I understand the other argument of saying, okay, if if you silently fail, things can go really wrong. But I really like how nice the code can look when you don't need to be checking is it different from null is it different from null like in java so despite of me being a fan of the no op option i think the optional is the right choice uh you need to unwrap things so the compiler can check what's going to happen i think the more the compiler can do the better and i'm not hassled by having to unwrap things explicitly the only caveat i would say um i was talking about this with uh, our colleague Mateusz the other day is when you now when you annotate an objective c method with nullability if you mark one of your input parameters as non-null what's the best practice there do you still need to check for null uh, at the beginning of the method do you or do you just assume you will never be past null especially when you've got an existing code base if you suddenly stop checking 
you can have many crashes or problems. Oh man, yeah. Um, do you have any oh, uh, point of view on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I see this all the time. And for me, it really depends on the context. So in Android Studio, you will see um, a warning when something is annotated as not null and you yep. check for null. So like this condition is always true. Yeah, it should be. So if you have a check there and then you either raise a more specific um, error or you return or have some special behavior. So uh, I, I'm always conflicted. I want to remove this because it's clearly expressed in the uh, signature. But unless you actually go through all the caller sites there, yeah, exactly. you can't really... How much can you trust a static analyzer? Because right. I'm not compile time. But Is the static analyzer going to run through the whole code base to check all the instances? Oh, yeah. And sometimes it's, it's not really possible. But so what I mean by context is if this is something that sits at the base level, so some core library, some base functionality, I'd be re really careful uh, modifying this. If this is, however, some higher level code, so some feature level code that you own and that only your team is supposed to use, then I think it's totally fine. Get rid of that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I will start applying that because that's what I want to do, but on the other hand, I feel really unsafe if I just take the plunge on on, on that regard. So yeah, and just to set the record straight, I don't I don't even know if if I care all that much if your application crashes directly, if it dereferences a null pointer or doesn't do anything. Null null pointers are just an absolutely horrible idea and shouldn't exist. And till this day, I'm still mad at GoLang for introducing. A new language in 2007 that still comes with null pointers. Null pointers, go home. All right, uh, Pasi, shall we wrap this iOS versus Android discussion here? Uh, shall we wrap it up? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's still plenty of topics we can talk about in, in more detail, like architecture and stuff like testing, testing uh, background stuff, uh, background activities services. versus yep. view controllers. Yeah. What are they? But yeah, let's. So stay tuned for more more battles between iOS and Android. Yeah, and let and us know if you want to hear about yeah. any specific topics. If you have any requests, like the best DJs, we take them. Cool. So we want to start with something new now at the end of the episodes, and that is picks. So something that any of us found interesting. So do you want to kick us off? Okay. So I wanted to mention this really nice library, uh, Coreplot. Uh, I'm using it for one of my side projects. This is a library that has been been around for a while. It, uh, it now supports Swift. It can be used in Swift. Um, I was going to say it's quite nice to use in Swift, but it is not as nice as it could be. Uh, it abuses the uh, mutable object pattern. So um, instead of taking... Eek, mutation. Huh? Mutation. Ugh. Yeah, so instead of taking advantage of the um, mutability uh, inherited, like defining variables as let or var that Swift has, to indicate whether they are mutable or not, you need to create mutable objects. Uh, sorry, yeah, mutable version of the objects just to modify the color of a graph or the uh, indicator for each of the points and things like that. So that can be improved. Other than that, that library is amazing what it does. Well, it sounds like you've got yourself a weekend project there. I expect a pull request by Sunday. Yep, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking of making some contributions on that. So anyone needing to draw some graphs in iOS, I recommend checking it out. We, as always, we'll link to this in the show notes. So Pasi, what's one of yours? So I want to pick a paper and th that came from a New Year's resolution I had for 2015, which was 
was read more papers, don't follow all the new trends, and uh, try to learn new JavaScript frameworks every week, but read some more academic literature and papers. And this one is by Phil Freeman, and it's called um, Stack Safety for Free. It's about uh, free monads that are very common um, as a pattern in functional languages like PureScript and Haskell. And he describes this um, for PureScript, how you can implement free monads in a stack safe manner because oftentimes you run out of stack space there when you naively implement them and especially for runtimes like JavaScript that don't have proper tail recursion optimization. You have to be really careful there. And interestingly, um, that was actually ported to Scala as well for the Scala Z library. And yeah, I, I felt like it was pretty approachable even though it's um, a pretty complicated topic, right? Do you have another pick? Yeah, so I'm going to cover my my two other picks uh, very briefly because I don't want to spoil them for anyone. Um, one of them is a book, one of my New Year's resolutions. I want to read books like nonstop. Uh, my usual pattern is I read a book, I really enjoy it, I dwell on it for a while, I miss it, and then I don't pick the next book for a while. So my and that makes me not read as much as I should or I could. I'm going to try to read nonstop um, this time. So the book I'm reading at the moment is called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. This is a, a book written by one of the survivors of the Everest tragedy that happened in 1996. And it's amazing. It's taking me, it's a bit difficult for me because it uses really complicated vocabulary, mountaineering uh, vocabulary that I don't know. Interesting, okay. Um, so, but thanks to Kindle and the dictionary feature, I'm learning a lot of new vocabulary. Uh, I recommend it, it's amazing, really exciting and really sad at the same time. Um, Did you listen to books at all, like Audible or something No, like I don't. Okay, so no. only podcast. For me, there isn't really room for audiobooks either. I, my, yeah. my podcast queue is always full. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the second one is a TV show. It's called The Expanse. It is based on um, on a series of books, I think, the novel series. And I think is the authors are Daniel Ab Abraham and Ty Frank. I hope I didn't butcher the names. It is great. It is uh, produced by Sci-Fi. Um, I remember you asked me about it. I thought I told you initially that the production values were not great were not great but i completely changed my mind you passy and everyone listening to this you need to watch it if you like space or if you enjoy battlestar galactica go watch it you're gonna you, you will not regret it yeah i heard some good things about it john syracuse mentioned that on a yeah. different podcast then i asked you about it and yeah. yeah i will definitely give it give it a try this weekend cool so do you want to cover your yeah, so my, my last pick is Google Contributor, which is a service by Google, surprisingly, and uh, not a lot of people know about it. So I, I tweeted uh, about the service a while ago, and I saw a lot of people being really surprised that it existed. Um, it's a service that you can pay a small amount each month, and you will see fewer ads. That's actually all it does. Um, so at the moment, I give it $5 a month and <laughs> chose that Google then replaces a lot of the AdSense stuff with kittens instead of the actual ads. That's amazing. Can you pick what you want to watch? Can you, can you see doggies? Unfortunately, I can't uh, see doggies. I would definitely increase my, my amount if I could see doggies instead. But it's really cool. They, they give you a list of, um, of the sites 
that signed up for the service? Um, I think everyone automatically opts in because uh, most um, people who show ads just care about the money and they will continue to receive the money. But okay. you see, see a list of the websites that have received money from you that month and directly in sense. So that's really nice. And if you if you want to, you can even pick to only enable it for um, some sites and not for others. Has any of the websites that get money from that service published uh, stats? Can they even see stats on what money comes from the service, or it just comes through like ad revenue, or you know? I'm not I'm not sure about this, but I think most of the time the websites get um, the money for uh, for clicks and not for impressions. So like if you yeah. if you put an ad on your website, you won't. You won't get any money for people just looking at it. I think that's the case for AdSense, but I might be wrong. But if I'm wrong, it didn't used to be the case. But I, I would, I would totally believe that if that is the case, that you yeah. don't get. Um, but obviously, there used to be cost per, per impression, but probably, I, yeah. So per, I, mi- per I thousand think impressions. that was not the case for for the Google Ads at okay. least. But for this, obviously, you don't have to click on the kittens in order to uh, give the websites money. But it's really cool. You can see um, how much money you've contributed to the individual websites. And I think you have to join a wait list, but just ping me on Twitter if you want an invite. It's really cool. Cool. All right. I think with this, we're going to wrap up uh, today's show, uh, episode. Um, as always, we ask you for your feedback. Please, um, you can find us on Twitter at Strictly Untyped. You can find Pascal at Passy. You can find myself on Twitter at Monchote. And as always... You can leave us feedback on iTunes, on Pocket Cast, on Overcast, what other services I, are there? I don't think you can leave feedback at the moment on Pocket Cast. You, you can recommend at least, right? Um, no? I don't think you can, no. I, I really wish they would add an option like this, but yeah, if you if you like the episode, um, yeah, tweet at us. Yeah. And if you have any questions, you can either mention us on Twitter, you can send us a DM. We open the DM, so anyone can, can ask us any questions we can we're open to to cover different topics or answer questions so i think that's everything for today right yeah that's it all right basi thanks a lot until next and time see you soon bye today we will sell our uniform live together what can i expect about the expanse is there a short version of this okay um, okay, so first of all, about the expand, I really like that I'm learning stuff about the solar system. Really, is it scientifically accurate? Um, do they tr- in try terms to of be? so the it's in our universe then. It is on in our solar system. Okay. So the premise is that the humanity have colonized Mars and the asteroid belt. I'm sold. Huh? <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> so the asteroid belt, I didn't know about the much of, about the asteroid belt. So one of the main places where the story takes place is Ceres, which is one is the biggest body actually considered considered a dwarf planet. And this is a massive rock in the asteroid belt. So there are they talk about some other uh, bodies in the asteroid belt where Phoebe's, Phoebe's and some other stations that they have in there. Um, they are trying to terraform a Mars. It's just really good. Like, okay. seriously, it, it's uh, it's great. It, it makes me feel similar to the way I felt when I used to watch Battlestar Galactica. 
but at the same time it feels closer because with all the imagery we've got lately from oh, the, okay, the, the rovers and the, cool. um, all, this, uh, all the probes we've sent in the solar system, yeah. it just feels really accurate. And they take into account things like people that have grown up in series. Uh, they obviously grew up with in lower gravity, so that has some consequences for the human body. And obviously air and water supplies are constrained in those planets. They need to harvest eyes from the uh, belt. They call them belters. Uh, they have their own language. I think y you're going to really like it. Okay, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it a try maybe tomorrow. And uh, I, f I forgot to pick Better Call Saul, but I don't need to sell yeah. you on this one. It's it's just fantastic. Yeah, that would yeah. have been my, my third pick. But um, have you tried Colony yet? No, 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 no I haven't. Uh, this, this, is, this is another show. I don't think it's... Um, I'm not that excited about it uh, as you are about um, the expanse but I, I still think it's it's a good show so far because it feels a bit lost like okay in that it uh, doesn't really tell you mu much it just drops you right in and you what have is to the figure premise? um it's it plays somewhere in the not too distant future in Los Angeles and something has happened so something is weird um, over the over time you find out and this is not really a spoiler they've been invaded and this is something probably not from the same planet okay. and then you have people who collaborate with the occupation and some who resisted so you have this kind of classic setup of resistance and collaborators there but a lot of that feels very Nazi regime like so there's a pretty strict curfew with um, okay. shot on uh, shoot on sight so if you go out after after hours and you're not allowed they will just directly shoot you they have drones for that example is hard to imagine in LA right <laughs> yeah there's a massive wall around um, LA as well so okay. they they are separated into smaller districts and LA is one of them and yeah, you don't really know much. And I, I really like this feeling. They don't start with, it's the year 2030, the the Earth has been invaded by forces or aliens called this and that. Nothing like this. You just see a family and they seem like a normal family, but then all of a sudden you see a really weird drone, which, which is definitely something for you, uh, even though they have something like anti-gravity, I think. Wow. So they aren't like hovercraft. By the way, for... Next episode, remind me to tell you about my drone story. Oh yeah, let's let's cover your drone story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll give that uh, colony. Colony. Uh, yeah. Is it? Have you seen uh, Under the Dome? Yes, it's better than that. Better. Under okay. the Dome was crap. That was cancelled, wasn't it? It was so slow. It oh. was so slow. I, I think I watched like ten episodes and everything. <sighs> not nothing happened, and not in the way that nothing happens in Better Call Saul, where you're just sitting there amazed by the scenery and just admiring the screen but like oh come on just tell me what is going to happen and don't not not, not some stupid youth love story yeah i don't want to hear about no this is this is good and well um josh holloway isn't is in, is in it and he's i think still pretty close to sawyer from lost so i can definitely see him in that role he's great yeah he's great 